Folks, this is Screen Watching. It's our weekly discussion of things, what we've been watching on the screen, movies, TV, and there's other screens I'm told as well. My name is Dan Barrett, joined here from, well, I don't even know how to introduce you at this point because it's been a few weeks since I've seen you. You've changed, I've changed, we've both been through quite a lot, but you have been on an overseas journey. You're a wizened, more travelled man at this point. Simon Foster, how are you doing, sir? Oh, Dan Barrett, I am back in the country just on 24 hours after nearly four weeks in the beautiful Scandinavian region of Europe, traveling through. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. It's good to be back. Thank you for the back row. Um, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, just beautiful parts of the world. And I've come back with uh, uh, reindeer antlers and I've come back with Norwegian mugs. Um, I've come back with I've come back with pewter uh uh, little mermaids. This is the sort of stuff stuff we bring back. A lot of lot of sort of gloves and Nordic gloves as well. So I've um, I've got some things here from you. I'm keeping the little mermaid, but you could do with a, a reindeer horn. So it's good to be back. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. Uh, how does a Nordic glove like differ from an Australian glove? Is it a different number of fingers? Like one of these Simpsons issues? No, going? this sort of crap all over it. There's a whole okay. lot of different variations on <laughs> snowflakes. That all this. It's and and this one has actually got. A representation of one of the world's famous railways, the Flum Railway, which we went on while we were in Norway. So there's, it's, it's a beautiful part of the world. We went to a, a reindeer, a reindeer farm, uh, uh, and and fed reindeer and then ate them, which was, and because they're beautiful animals and delicious, which is the best kind of animal. I, I don't know how to deal with that exactly. Uh, look, I'm just going to move on. Simon Foster, we've got a big show this week. We've got so many new movies that have come out. We've got a bunch of high-profile TV shows, a bit of a hidden gem that I want to discuss. And look, there's just a whole bunch of things. Uh, we usually do titles these days. I think that's how we do this. So, Simon, what's, what's on your docket this week? What have you got? Well, I have got one of the most talked about films of the year, maybe for all the wrong reasons. It's the mega flop, but very interesting, Babylon. I'll be looking at Transfusion, which is the new Sam Worthington film that's screening on uh, uh, the local streamer Stan here in Australia. And I'm also looking at The Whale. We're getting a, a, in a bit earlier for the uh, the local Australian release of, of Darren Aronofsky's new film, which is um, features Brendan Fraser in a career-reviving turn. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. What are you looking at? You've got some amazing titles this week. Sorry, when you say Sam Worthington, obviously you mean Avatar 2, The Way of Water, Sam Worthington. <laughs> That's the one, yes, which is still what he's best known for, of course. But, uh, uh, yeah, I'm keen to have a chat about Transfusion. He does some good work in it. But you sorry, have got the, the, the TV sorry. show that everyone's talking about. Follow-up question, sorry. And when we're talking about The Whale, are we talking about Brendan Fraser or are we talking about one of Avatar's who The Way of Waters, Tolkien's? Oh, boy. I, uh, we're going to get to what have you been watching also later in the show, but I'm keen to see how many times you've actually gone back to Pandora and revisited the world of James Cameron's Avatar. I can confirm I've been back to Pandora once in 2023 and I'll be talking about it in that segment and why it was quite different <laughs> to my 2022 viewing. Oh, I've only seen it twice. Anyway, Simon, on my docket this week, I'm talking about The Last of Us, which is one of the biggest TV show launches that will happen this year. Uh, also, I'm going to have a bit of a chat about a TV show which has, I would suggest, and I haven't looked at this, so I'll confirm by the time I talk about it in the segment, but... Ratings-wise, I think it's actually more widely viewed than The Last of Us is, but we'll discuss. Uh, this is a broadcast TV drama. I never thought I'd be talking about one of these again in a review-type wow, yeah. scenario. But it's the new Hillary uh, Swank TV series, Alaska Daily. 
which is not so new in the US anymore, but suddenly new to Australia, where it got delayed by a few months for the Disney+. Plus. Also, I'm going to talk about a movie this week, Simon. I'm going to talk about the brand new film. It's called Operation Fortune. Ru- <laughs> Such a terrible name. Operation <laughs> Fortune. I'll talk about why it's a terrible name later. Uh, Ruse de Gu- uh, How do you pronounce the word? It's, uh, you and your foreign languages. Ru- I tell you what, French. you should have seen some of the Scandinavian stuff. Well, you'd have had a heart attack trying to get your tongue around some of those. Yeah, the new Guy Ritchie one with Hugh Grant, Rue de Guerre, I think it's Rue de Guerre, that's how you pronounce it. I knew that if I had it like said to me sometime in the last like 48 hours, I'd be fine. But just reading it, boy, Simon. Also, I think I'd do much better with Scandi than I would the French because I've just watched a lot of Scandi dramas. I'm kind of a yeah, bit more in tune. Yeah. The kids over there must have such a tough time because the, the, they're like those big, long Welsh names. They're just like someone's just smashed their hand against a keyboard and invented a name out of it. Um, but, you know, we managed to sort of get our tongue around the, the Nordic. I might drop a few Nordic words into the, the uh, review segment later on. Yeah, if you could. I mean, it may just inspire me to spend my weekend at IKEA, but we'll find out. Uh, just before we get into the business of pod, uh, just making sure, how many dead bodies did you encounter during your time? There were some unusually shaped mounds of snow uh, at various intervals. So maybe when the, the spring thaw comes, the full sort of scale of Scandi, Noir, Murder and Intrigue will be revealed. Um, but we didn't come across too many. We saw three moose, which... I said at the time, I'm so excited to see these mooses, which got a big mm. laugh. Apparently, the plural of moose isn't mooses. Um, <laughs> but no, 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 okay, no well, frozen bodies in the snow. <laughs> look, I guess follow-up question. If you didn't find any frozen bodies in the snow, did you find yourself just taking a bit of a wander around, find yourself in a forest or something like that, and then suddenly yeah. encounter a situation where the entire community is being brought together with flashlights looking through said forest for a dead body? Well, that happens most days. You can sort of just stop your car and go for a wander and you'll mm. find, you know, the, the, the local villagers with their, with their, their, their torches trying to find, find a way through the undergrowth. Find poor 19-year-old girl. Um, anyway, Simon, <laughs> that, that's enough of that. Let's get into the reviews. It stinks. Okay, Simon Foster, new video sting. How exciting. Uh, folks. That we... is very exciting. Yeah, we've been flirting with video podcasts for a little bit. Uh, there have been some, let's just say, poorer quality audio-wise experiences than I would have liked over the last month and a half. But we think we've licked it, and if we haven't, I'm sorry. Let's dive in. First review, Simon. Uh, look, I, I want to start with Babylon. This is such a big release, and also quietly, Simon, I've seen this one. Discuss. Oh, boy. So we could be in for a, a fiery first review for uh, for this year or for 2023 a live broadcast okay so babylon is damien chassel's grand folly now he's sort of got the key to the city at the moment the young writer director who's had hit after hit with with whiplash and la la land and first man and he gets to make this massive um story three hours and eight minutes about the early days of cinema of the silent movie era and the wild indulgences that the creative types from that period uh, were able to undertake to, to make this new art form come alive. It's essentially a, a, a multi-hander, I guess you could say. Diego Calva stars as Manny Torres. He's a, a Mexican-American film assistant who's trying to make it big, and it's kind of about his uh, growth through the, 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 the uh, early years of the, the silent film era. You have Margot Robbie as Nellie Leroy. She and Manny sort of half team up and keep crossing each other's paths. 
Um, she's an aspiring actress who has this incredible sort of joie de vivre and, and comes alive in front of the camera. Brad Pitt is sort of that leading man archetype. He plays Jack Conrad, who's a huge silent film star. And Gene Smart is a, a journalist who's covering all these incredible individuals as they ride the roller coaster of fame. Um, then sound comes along and things start to fall apart. The industry is changing. Um, the studios are, are tightening their belts. The, the wild excesses um, which we're introduced to in this amazing opening sequence in the film um, start to wear on the, 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 all the people involved in, in Babylon. Um, and what happens is that the doomed nature of fame and, and the fleeting nature of this sort of lifestyle um, starts to take hold. Uh, everything is cocaine fueled. Everything is decadent. There's an extraordinary um, amount of uh, folly going on. And I use the term folly in every respect with this film because it is a movie that um, is, is, is Damien Chazelle's total indulgence in terms of what he wants to say about the early years of Hollywood. It's also essentially a remake of films we've seen in the past. It's very much Boogie Nights, if you break it down. It's very much Day of the Locust, which was a great 1970s film starring Karen Black, which also looked at the wild early days. Um, it also resembles another folly, Francis Ford Coppola's Cotton Club, uh, which was a very expensive flop back in the early 80s. Um, but for me, this is a movie that swings for the fences and doesn't always you know, hit its mark, doesn't always find the, the, the best maybe option in the way it tells its story, but it is undeniably an exuberant and frustrating and energised look at this incredible world. Um, and I, look, I've got to say, while admitting that it is flawed in the extreme in, in key moments, it also has some of the most bravado and um, exciting filmmaking that I've seen in a long, long time. So, you know, while I will certainly see that this is a, a film that has its troubles, um, even before we get to discussing its its box office fate, um, I'm glad these movies still get made. Okay, so Simon, I agree 100% with what you said, that this is a frustrating movie. But before I delve in, we didn't play the trailer, so let's play a little bit of a clip and we'll come back and talk about what I thought of the film. I think what we have here in Hollywood is high art. It's... Party size, if you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always want to be part of something bigger. Yes. Let's go! Something that lasts, that means something. You know, when I first moved to L.A., you know what signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. Okay. Uh, emphasis on the word dogs there, I think, is probably a key consideration to take away from that trailer there. Look, Simon, uh, this is a film that is absolutely swinging for the fences, and at no point would I ever say that I would not see a Damon Chazelle film because I think every time he absolutely goes there, but I do feel that he made so many wrong-headed choices through this, uh, you said something incorrect in your thing. You said that it was a three-hour three and eight-minute movie. It's three hours and nine minutes, and I know because I counted every single one of those minutes. 
Um, I went to the cinema. There were nine of us sitting there. It was the opening night in uh, one of the few VMAX screenings that are taking place for this one because screens are still taken up very much by Avatar at this point. So I wanted to make sure I got to see this on the biggest, loudest screen possible because that's how you see this movie. It is big and bombastic. Okay. Anyway, there were nine of us that went in. There were six of us that left at the end. Okay. Yeah. That's so an def- interesting sort of... That's yeah. an interesting take on it. Now, I was lucky enough oh, sorry, to see I haven't actually the... given you my take, which is that... No, no, I... Okay, so, so the, this is where my actual sort of real problems with it is, is that one of the things you mentioned is that the film definitely takes a lot of inspiration from Boogie Nights. And you can see that mm-hmm. from this opening segment. So Boogie Nights opens with this incredible... I think it's like about a 10, 12-minute sequence where you end up visiting a nightclub in the 70s and the camera swirls around through this nightclub and you get introduced to every single major character as we sort of travel around. It's a live place that feels real and vibrant and there's a real consistency to this room and you're following it around. This opens up in the exact same way. There's a big party being thrown by William Randolph Hearst, uh, rocks up at the house. At no point do I really know what time of the night this is. It could be about 7 o'clock for all I know. It could be 3 in the morning. Not sure. But we go in there and it's just like sort of blur of... I don't know how many of the people in that room were real, but it seemed like there was a lot of CG people in the background there. The place didn't feel real at all. There's a whole bunch of people in that scene who are just um, sucking and effing. We'll put that. It's a big orgy that's taking place within this room. Okay, and so you follow the follow the camera around. You meet a few characters, uh, swing back outside, meet Brad Pitt, meet Margot Robbie. Um, you meet the... Uh, what's the other actor's name? He's apparently from one of the Narcos series from Netflix. Diego... Diego Calva. Yeah, Diego Calva. We meet his character, Manny, um, who's kind of obviously the breakout of this film. Like, you know, he'll be around for years because I think he's very charismatic and he's kind of great in this. But you meet all these characters, but at no point does it ever really feel like a real space because it just feels so CG and a bit fake in the background because no one really actually interacts with any of these spaces. You just walk past, like, this sort of background. It's kind of like they're in one of these Mandalorian expanse. That's not the expanse, what do they call it? Um, The whatever, that fake environment that uh, the new Star Wars films were all shot in. Uh, it doesn't really feel like they're actually in that yeah. space. And then, like, halfway through that sequence, it stops, and it stops being this big space where people are, as I said, sucking at effing, and instead... Uh, and doing a whole bunch of coke around the place as well. And instead, it goes to a nightclub act where suddenly everyone's looking very respectable in suits and looking fancy, as this woman does. Uh, she's a recurring character throughout it but she sings a musical number you know the spotlights on her it gets very quiet but where is this taking place is it even in the same building are these even the same people it's so distinct from everything else that's taken place as part of this larger scene is it on a different floor we don't know because the film never really goes there and that's kind of indicative of my problems with this film as a whole there's a lot of stuff happening but at no point does it ever really feel connected and at no point are you the viewer given any sort of real roadmap as to where these characters are existing where they're coming from or what the purpose of any of these characters are like it's just a big mess and in three hours and nine minutes i'd kind of have liked a little bit more substance taking place i don't disagree that it's a film that that um fumbles its its key character traje- trajectories there are there are such intense moments provided by Diego Calva by Margot Robbie by Brad Pitt but overall it doesn't quite sort of gel in a, a singular sort of journey for all the characters that sort of um uh, switching of realities that you that you brought up there the party turns into sort of the torch singer nightclub moment um 
that's sort of the the, the coke fueled drug induced dream reality that this film sets its early its its first hour in. Um, so I wasn't at all concerned that this was a film made up of certainly that first hour images and sensations and filmmaking sort of style stylistic choices that um, waver from from the real world. That's what it was to those involved with it. The yeah, movie like, opens the, on the one of the most I, preposterous... Sorry, Simon, the, sorry, no, no, can, sorry, just because we'll lose it. The argument I'd make is that I don't feel that the film is on cocaine. It's nowhere near sweaty and gross enough for that because it's such a pristine movie. To me, it feels like we're completely lucid, but we're watching a whole bunch of people on cocaine. And that's why scenes like that don't make the mark for me. But sorry, go on. The fact that it opens, and there's a, a very funny opening sequence in which Manny is trying to transport an elephant across the, to, to, to the Hollywood Hills into LA to, to make his name as, a, as an elephant wrangler, um, and one poor individual feels the full force of the elephant's fear, um, as only elephants can provide. But it's, it, it sets the tone for what is a ridiculous and preposterous and entirely inflated sense of, of reality. Um, while also being this uh, sort of indicative scene about the, the, the intensity of the ambition that young Manny has. So I, I, and I think that is conveyed. And Manny himself is, you're right, he's a, it's a terrific performance from Diego Calva, but he compromises his true self to such an extent that when the, by the time the end of the film comes around and the huge sweeping statement that films will always remain the stuff of dreams and, um, and the incredible montage that ends the film, which makes no sense whatsoever, but which still conveys a, a, an idea of what the film's about. The impact that it has on Manny and makes him realise that, you know, I've, I've lost such touch with the, the, the um, industry I wanted to be a part of and the person, the creative person I wanted to be. It's quite a tragic ending. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of feeling in that for me watching it or for the audience because there's been so much artifice that goes on before it. So it's hard to sort of find real world emotions right at the moment that Damien Chazelle wants you to feel. But having said that, it's still such an incredible journey. And while I don't disagree that three hours and eight minutes is a long haul for some of the stuff in this, three hours I, and nine I also minutes. think that there's going to be three hours and nine minutes. I also think there's going to be moments in the future when we look at a film like this, like we look at Once Upon a Time in America, or like we look at the original Avatar, which also clocked in at that thing as this incredibly indulgent, but incredibly sort of exciting creative vision. Yeah, look, here's the thing. I was never bored during this movie. I was just disappointed regularly through this movie. No. Yeah, and like you could see the inspirations well, see, that's that, that growing that on the sleeve. Of- well, I was just going to say, you can see the inspirations that's wearing on its sleeve, and it just wasn't meeting the standard that's been set by any of those films. And Boogie Nights being really the film that I think this movie really desperately wants to be. You know, it has been interesting watching the critical response to this, because it's a film which has absolutely cut the critical community down the middle. It's... it's I went through this morning before we recorded this and did a bit of a, a, a look at what it's working on the on the um, you know, critic aggregators. It's at 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it's got an average of 7 out of 10, nearly, or nearly 7 out of 10. Metacritic has it at 61 out of 100. The cinema score, the audience is having trouble with it. They've only got it at C+, um, and it should be, <laughs> and that's on an A-plus to F scale. 
Yeah. But but on post track, which is the other audience measuring tool, they were seventy four percent of the audience members gave it a positive score, with forty seven percent saying they'd definitely recommend it. So. It's a film that is was never going to be a huge hit, so to spend the kind of money on it that means it has to make two hundred and fifty million dollars worldwide to break even is is ridiculous. Of course, it's a it's a true indulgent, a true folly that only someone who's got the Academy Award credibility that Damien Damien Chazelle has at the moment can get away with. Um, but I'm also sort of frustrated with the critical community, which is the point I wanted to make to come into a, to review a film like this, a, a film which love it or hate it really swings for the fences. There's a lot of critics that have been sitting on the fence, you, and, and no offence to you, of course, but using words like, oh, I'm disappointed with it, or it's this insanely ambitious, exhausting film, and if your reaction is kind of, yeah, you know, I'm disappointed, or I'm, no, no, but you know... It's fine, if it is swinging for the fences... You're not no, watching it for the right reasons. No, but if it's swinging for the fences... And the other thing I want to... Simon, Simon, Simon. The other point I want to make... No, no, let me refer... Let yeah, refer, let me make one more point. There's okay, a lot well, of reviews... There's a lot of reviews that say... Let me just say one more point. There's a lot of reviews that also say they don't care for the characters. And I say, then don't. Fuck them. Don't. You don't have to love movie characters in all the movies, but you need to see them for the journey they're going on. And if they're all doomed, coked up, self-destructive tragics, then that's the film you're watching. Don't... I, I, I don't... I, I hate when critics put the spotlight on what they're not seeing and don't review what they are seeing. So that's just my point there. Sorry, I did talk over you, so go ahead. Well, in regards to that last point, I would say that none of the characters are actually particularly that interesting, uh, particularly the Margot Robbie character, who's just a manic pixie dream girl on coke. Uh, essentially, we see the... Not at all. Not at all. No, she absolutely is. Uh, she's got no other depth than that. Uh, but then also, if we want to get back to the idea of people saying that they're disappointed by the movie, it's because the film is swinging for the fences, but it never really achieves anything. Like, there's so much ambition, but we're not seeing the ambition actually realised, which is why it's disappointing. Because we would love... I went into that movie hoping to see a film where Damon Chazelle... Like, look, I'm one of the few people that liked La La Land. Okay, like I'm putting my cards on the table. I'm like there for, you know, what he's bringing to the screen. But I'm watching him be yep. as crazy as ambitious as he was, and at no point does he ever land it. And so I walked away disappointed because I wanted to see him land it. I, I think it's a real, um, uh, I, I can't even think of the word that I'm sort of looking for here. Um, I think it's being overly dismissive of critics saying, oh, how dare they suggest they're disappointed by something. They're walking in wanting it to be amazing, and it just isn't. This is a bad movie. Okay, this is one we'll have to, to disagree on. I, I think it's a it's a film, and and we in one of our early screen watching podcasts, we did a, a middle bit segment on the grand film follies and talked about things like 1941 and Heaven's Gate and Cotton Club and Waterworld, and I you know that these are the sort of movies that I love because they show directors absolutely swinging for the fences and more often than not coming up terribly short, but also being, you know, wildly and grandly ambitious um, to tell these kind of stories in an era when, when these sort of things don't get made or don't get told very much. So, you know, I, it, it's probably going to pick up a few Oscar nominations um, in terms of its technical side of thing. I don't think it's in the running for any of the sort of the, the, the major awards, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I think it's a film that a lot of people will come to in the future and, and discover and, and hopefully appreciate more than it's, it's being looked at now.
See, oh, I just to your it... point that you saw it with nine people and three walked out. I saw it at the I saw it in Copenhagen at the at the uh, uh, Danish premiere of the, of the film, and it was there were rounds of applause throughout it. I think this is a film that's going to travel to different parts of the world and play a lot better than it played in the US. Yeah, well, it seems to be not playing at all here in Australia based on the limited attendance we saw for the opening night. <laughs> we'll see. All right, so that's a huge film to to kick off with. Okay, well, let's, let's go TV-wise, and we'll talk about something actually prestigious that's getting good yes. reviews around the place. It's The Last of Us. I'm going to play a little clip. If you don't think there's hope for the world, why bother going on? You haven't seen the world, so you don't know. You keep going for family. I'm not family. No. Your cargo. Why are you so important? Somewhere out west. They're working on a cure. I think what really impressed them was the fact... Okay, Simon, The Last of Us. This is HBO's big new zombie TV drama. The world has gone through a bit of a post-apocalyptic shift. And now you've got a situation where there's one girl who's been, we'll say bit, but we'll say infected, um, who, wait a second, her infection seems to have stopped. She's got a little bit of a scuffing on the arms, but she seems to be okay after the infection period. So wait a second, is she humanity's last hope? Uh, meanwhile, you've got a guy who's dealing with some psychological trauma of his daughter being killed during the initial sort of outbreak of it all, who he is now tasked quite a number of years later to take this girl who's, uh, you know, several days past the infection sort of scary period across to a uh, lab from a sort of series of resistance people who are trying to find a cure for the disease. So this is humanity's last hope. And so this guy is dealing with the trauma of having lost his own daughter and then suddenly his task looking after a young girl. You can see where all this is going. So this is a lavish, beautiful, amazingly uh, well-constructed TV series. The production is lavish. Uh, it was shot in Canada. And from what I understand, it's the most expensive production that's ever been filmed there in terms of a TV production. Like, you know, when you look at this thing, you can see the money on the screen. It is so gorgeous looking. Now, it's based on a 2013 video game of the same name. Back in 2013, I played this game. What was amazing about this game, and the reason why it stunned so many people back in 2013, was that the game itself was really cinematic, to the point where you actually genuinely cared about the characters, you were engaged in them, you were deeply invested. The game opens with like this sort of sequence in the same way that the new TV series opens, uh, where we see like the Joel character, the main guy in the TV series played by Pedro Pascal. He, uh, his, it's about the infection breaking out and it's about him and his daughter like suddenly just freaking out and having to get out of the small town that they're in while everything's just like collapsing around them. Anyway, she ends up being killed and she, you're watching this within the game. You're experiencing this because it's interactive as well as um, through sort of um, film bits. It is a deeply shocking way for the game to start. And when that starts, like you're emotionally invested because you care about this girl, you care about this guy, and then suddenly it's all been upended in the same way that Joel's life has been upended. Like it's a such a rich way to throw yourself into a world when it's got that level of interactivity to it. So the big question I had when I was going to this TV show was, 
what are they going to do with this TV show to actually justify the reason why I'd watch it as a show without that interactivity, okay, and just watch it as a story that I've already experienced before. And I have to say, after watching the first two episodes, I don't really think that I've justified it. Now, there's a lot of critics who are giving this rave reviews, and a lot of them will say, I didn't play the video game. And totally fair enough, like, if you haven't played the game, I think you're going to be in for a really good time with this. But me, I just kept on just, like, I acknowledge this is a very good production. Like, everything about this works, but it just kind of feels like you've gone and made, remade a movie 10 years after you've already made that movie. Like, I just don't really know what new things are bringing to the table. And when they do bring new elements to it, so episode two opens with this uh, extended opening sequence where it's not set in the US, it's set, I'll say elsewhere, because the episode, as we record, this hasn't aired yet, and I don't want to ruin it for people. But it's a really interesting, engaging sequence, because they're doing something entirely new and coming at the story from a new perspective. And when they do that, like, I could really just feel the quality of this production right there on my screen. But unfortunately for me, someone who'd played the game, I just kind of thought we're treading too much of the similar beats. Okay, so, as you know, and regular listeners know, is I don't play video games and certainly hadn't heard of The Last of Us until um, word of this series came down. So for me... This was just a gripping bit of narrative storytelling, this first episode, that um, did all those things to me as a new viewer that the video game did to you as a, as a past player. That opening sequence with the young girl and her fate really rocked my world. I did not expect that to happen. Um, and then as the story evolves um, and Padre Pascal's character is, is caught, you know, in this, this um, compound to protect the, the survivors from the... The, the zombie hordes. Um, I, it's it's familiar territory for someone who watches as much zombie stuff for me, but it's done with character depth and it's done with class and it's done with a, a production values that make it watchable and what we hope us zombie watchers hope for um, in most of the things that we watch and very rarely get. So all those things work. To your point that it's too much or too familiar uh, or, or too closely tied to its source material to find anything new in it, I find that a really interesting point because it's very often the complaint is, oh, it's nothing like the book or, oh, gee, why did they bother remaking that? It's nothing yeah, but, like so, the you know what the difference so is? You know what the difference is the there? You're saying almost the opposite. Yeah. That... But sorry, the difference there is that often it's an adaptation of a book or it's taking it from another medium. Okay. And like there's reasons why people get upset about like deviations and why they get upset when things sort of hem too closely there. But ultimately what we're doing is we're taking it from a video game, which is a different medium. Okay, but what really made The Last of Us stand out was the cinematic nature of that. And so it's so close to a film. And part of the gimmick, the sell of The Last of Us is that you're playing a movie. Okay, like you're actually engaging in a movie. And so the production was there. Like it really felt like you were involved in what was a film. And they were actually successful in that. Like it felt really quite different to most video games in terms of usually video games will be like some cutscenes and you start playing the game, but they really sort of linked the experiences of both so beautifully into this game. And it's why it's considered to be one of the greatest games. But the gimmick of that is that it's a movie. And so when you suddenly take away that interactivity, interactivity from the movie experience, suddenly it just kind of feels a little bit hollow, but also just feels too soon and too similar. We're getting very close to the powder keg topic that you and I often clash over in that it's not a movie. It's still a game. And you no, no, have it is control still a game. Narrative, you have control narratively 
of what goes on in the the game and and the extent to which you can uh, influence the, the the ongoing story of the of the video game. You don't in a movie. Yeah, um, and no, there no, are I so that. many elements. Yeah, yeah so but, it's it's. But Simon, essentially, when the game, yeah, like on. when the experience of that game is so predicated heavily on it being such a cinematic experience and like trying to make it as movie like as possible, this just hems too similarly. It's not the same thing. Like, I'm not saying that at all, but it's too similar. So when I sat down and watched it, it's like, well, how do you justify this at this point? Like, how do you make it different enough from that experience? And I don't think they've done that. As a gamer, you're saying that, but as, as a TV watcher, I'm saying... Yeah, but this is what I'm saying. Like, essentially, if you haven't played that game, if you haven't had that experience, you're probably going to do just fine with this one. It's the same thing as what I was just saying, that if that remade a movie 10 years after the previous version, if you haven't seen that original movie, you're probably going to have a great time with a really quality production that takes place later. Like, that's fine. But when it comes off the back so closely to something that's just so similar, like, that's suddenly where you start feeling just a little bit... It's just a bit too samey. Has the, has the gaming community... What, what's been... You're more over that side of the oh, industry well, than I, I mean, am. Barely. Is the gen- barely. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I'm not... I'm old like... man claws into some of the... Team. No, but I'm not really a gamer. So, I mean, I'll play the occasional game. But, like, you know, I mean, I'm not yeah. like you were at Church and State where, heaven forbid, I play a video game. Uh, but I just don't really play them that often. And I don't really engage in video game media all that much. Um, all I've really read is TV it's critics a... have yeah, embraced it. it... It's all. It's, it's such an interesting debate to have because for so many years the the um, walk up start to any conversation about do we adapt this video game into a film is that all video game adaptations are shit and everything goes every any discussion in this regard and we've discussed this previously on the podcast always works yeah. its way back to Super Mario Brothers so to to actually <laughs> the, say the that we of the shit exactly so to actually say that we have now got a video game adaptation that really succeeds as a little bit of as as a brilliant bit of TV storytelling, yet is just too closely aligned to the, its original source material to to break out in its own way. That's that's a new debate to have when you're talking about video game adaptations. Look, it is, but let's, I mean, this is the thing about The Last of Us in that it is a really different video game experience. It is just so, as mm. I said, like this really sold itself on being a interactive movie in a way that yeah. other games don't do that. And the reason why most video game adaptations go off the rails is because w- the sort of storyline that you construct to have a experience within a video game is often really quite different than narrative concerns you have for pretty much most other media. Like it's designed to be interactive. Sure. And essentially, usually the plots are so thin because you actually don't want that much sort of plot sort of really hampering. Because essentially, you don't want to over-labor the experience because people just want to get right in there and start playing a game. But The Last of Us really was built with this idea of you're engaging within this world. It's a different experience, and that's why we're having a pretty different conversation around this one. All right. The Last of Us is on HBO Max in the US. Where is it playing here in Australia? Uh, It would be on binge which is the australian home of hbo as it stands on the binge on the binge yeah. all right well let's get on to the next one uh your man sam worthington has found himself in a new film on the australian men. oh sorry Simon, i just dumped right, jumped right in we're not invincible <laughs> you just gotta keep your line i was really good to see you soon what are you doing? 
I'm a sales rep. Get you to check out some of the specials this month. <laughs> About you, you are still doing the same thing. It's what we good at, Corporal. Okay, I think I've seen enough. Okay, well now this is interesting because it 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 is a story about a returned serviceman who, uh, played by Sam Worthington, his name's Ryan Logan, he's a Special Forces operative. So he's this highly trained, battle-hardened, um, instinctive soldier who's trying to cope with life back in the real world after a tragedy. He's lost his wife and his unborn daughter in a terrible car accident. Um, and to make ends meet and to try to come to terms with the uh, the insanity of his world, he becomes involved with his ex-CEO, played by Matt Nabel, um, who also uh, wrote and directed the film. Um, and they get caught up in uh, uh, knocking off some cash from uh, a drug dealer. Um, things go terrible, um, go terribly. And all the time, uh, Sam Worthington is trying to deal with his son, Billy, played really well by Edward Carmody, who's struggling himself with growing older, uh, the loss of his mum, what it means to be a teenage boy without much of a a father figure guiding him. Um, And Sam Worthington in this dual role of hardened killer caught up in an underworld that he doesn't really want to be, but sort of he has to be, um, and a father who's just not dealing with Billy's uh, sometimes acting up. Um, It makes for a pretty powerful film I, I must say in the end it sort of leans a bit too heavily into the the, the criminal sort of b-movie tropes um but along the way it says some really sort of deeper and harder things about return servicemen psychology and um dealing with integration back into to, um, contemporary society uh this played one of the major sessions at, at the recent veterans film fest i can't remember whether it was opening or closing night um and I would be very interested to see how a cinema full of um, soldiers took to the portrayal of a special forces operative like Ryan Logan dealing in such um, dark places, um, all within the sort of context of a, of a, of a B-movie thriller. So um, this was better than I expected to be. Still not a great film, but Worthington is very good, and especially Matty Nabel, who has some really big scenes as the unhinged XCCO um, is uh, is terrific. So uh, transfusion on Stan. Okay, Simon, we're going to move on to Alaska Daily, now streaming on Disney Plus in Australia, and it's an ABC drama from the US. Good journalism is what somebody doesn't want you to know. Her name is Gloria Nanmack. She went missing. No one's going to do anything about it. Not the cops, not the courts. Her death is part of a pattern. She went missing when she was 17. We never found her. She was taken. Alaska has a funny way of revealing things to you. Okay, Simon, that's a lot. Uh, sorry, what's the series called again? It's Alaska Daily? Yeah. Uh, the reason it's called Alaska, <laughs> Alaska Daily, Daily is because that's... Yeah, that's the name of the newspaper that they work at. So the series opens up. It's Hilary Swank. She's a fancy New York Times-style writer. Uh, I don't think she's in New York. I think she's somewhere else. 
Yeah, no, she's New York based. Uh, so anyway, she kind of gets cancelled. She releases a story which isn't really necessarily fact-checked properly, or at least, just, you know, there's accusations that she hasn't. And so suddenly she's drummed out. She's kind of looking around for something to do. You know, things aren't going great for her. But then a former boss of hers ends up poaching her to come and work for the Alaska Daily. She doesn't really have a whole lot of other options and so finds herself in a fairly remote, very small market with some very remote, small local news issues that are really driving a lot of the journalism at Alaska Daily. Um, as is the case with pretty much any newspaper publication these days that isn't the New York Times, not a lot of money really being invested in there. Turns up to the newsroom to find that it's not in a freestanding building somewhere, but rather it's a shop in like a local strip mall that's being converted into a office for the local paper. But that's the reality of like most where the lot of newspapers are going these days. So what I like about this is that it is actually fairly reflective of a modern day news situation. Uh, Simon, if I'm going to sell you on this, I would maybe point out that mm -hmm. this series was created by Todd McCarthy. Uh, sorry, Tom McCarthy, not Todd McCarthy, who's one of the awards watchers. Uh, Tom McCarthy, okay. who's the gentleman who's the former actor turned writer-director who's responsible for films like Spotlight, which just quietly, Spotlight, yes. not only one of the greatest films made about journalism, but I think full stop, like just one of the best movies I've really seen. I just think it's a great it's piece a of cinema. Film. Yep. Uh, yeah, so considering that, considering that he's got a bunch of other really good films under his belt as well, I was particularly interested to see what he's doing here, particularly with Hilary Swank, who, you know, I mean, she is an actor of a third amount of, uh, you know, Gravis Haas behind her as well. What they're doing here and what they've got here, Simon, and also the other thing that drew me to it, we've talked about this on the podcast, there should be TV shows about journalism because they're kind of generally fun to watch and they've got all the hallmarks of police investigation, but also there's a sort of ethical, like, human concern that's laid over the top as well. This was kind of exactly what I was looking for in a drama series and sat down to watch it, it almost delivers. Like, it's it's good. Oh. It's, it's just yeah. it's a little bit flat. And part of the re reason for that is that because uh, it is in a small town area and every episode is very much... You've got the Hillary Swank storyline where her character, mm. Eileen, uh, she's following up on some, a series of missing girls that have, you know, um, gone missing throughout Alaska over the years, and particularly one girl who she's trying to solve her uh, murder. So that's the thread that runs through it. But then the other characters are more or less stuck every week with the story of the week storyline. And it's all sort of small town. So episode two, it's about a local diner that's been closed and it's been bought out by a large, <laughs> uh, like, burger chain. Uh, and so it's like, oh, why is she selling up? And then you find out her reasons for it are, I mean, kind of interesting, but the show is just not that interesting enough to kind of My sell first. that. Uh, but essentially, if you're watching this, I think people are going to be happy enough with it. It's definitely one of the best network dramas that are currently on the air. I think that mm. it's aspirationally, much like Babylon, it's reaching for something and it never really quite gets there, which is disappointing. Uh, but part of the reason it's disappointing is that those B storylines are just not really quite substantial enough. And I would say that a lot of the actors, the performances from some of the supporting cast, not necessarily quite there at the depth that it needs to be either. That's interesting because I was about to ask whether Miss Hillary Swank is a problem, despite her being a two-time Oscar winner. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm not really always sold on her her performances. I'll tell you a very quick story. On the flight back from overseas, I finally caught up with the only um, 
Oscar-winning film of the last 20-odd years that I hadn't seen, and that was Million Dollar Baby, starring, of course, Miss Hilary Swank. So, mm. um, And she was terrific in that, and it's a fine film. I can see why it won all the awards. So for you to bring up Alaska Daily, it made me, it made me think that she is the kind of actress who can sometimes be a little hard to warm to, um, and her, her mannerisms on screen can sometimes be a, a little bit technical, um, not always sort of human. And, and this uh, Alaska Daily sounds like the kind of show which needs to be grounded in a very human um, sort of way of storytelling. The setting certainly has me intrigued. I love seeing the the you know the snow covered out the uh, snow covered mountains and the, the the wild landscape of Alaska. So that's a huge plus. As is Tom McCarthy. So I'm going to be checking these out. As as is the you know stories about journalism, which we've harped on previously as being terrific opportunities to tell strong narratives. Yeah, I will say Hillary Swank is the best thing about this, but also all the issues that you cite about Hillary okay. Swank, absolutely on display here. Ah, okay. Well, that's yeah. interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to check it out. So, yeah. all right. That's on the Disney Plus channel. Now, yeah. I sorry, just, sorry, Simon, before we go into see... that, sorry, a bit of a frustration. Yes. So, this is a series that debuted back in, sorry, looking for the dates, October 6th last year. So, it's run out the first six right. episodes um, already. So first six, and then it's coming back in late February for like another four episodes. So 10 episode season. Right. But it, it's broadcast TV, Simon. This is often how they operate. So often they'll run through like six or 10 episodes and then be down over the Christmas period and come back for a bit and then run for three episodes and be off for two weeks and come back. It's how TV used to work. And we used to just be accepting of that. But now, heaven forbid that you have to wait like a couple of weeks between episodes. Uh, but debuted back in October, despite the fact that this is uh, distributed by Disney, it's made for the ABC network in the US, which is a Disney channel, it is all Disney, delayed into Australia. It only got debuted on, I think it's about the 4th of January, so this ostensibly right. is a newish series on Disney. It's just we haven't done a podcast mm -hmm. in the last few weeks, so I could talk about this. Uh, I, have I just ruined that we pre-recorded about like 12 podcasts? No, I think we mentioned that considerably through the pre-records anyway. We warned people that this was going to be um, <laughs> kind of me just talking for most of them. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, certainly the last week's one. Uh, but ultimately, uh, Disney, for some reason, have delayed it like two and a bit months before they started playing it here. And even though there's been six episodes in the US, they're still kind of like dripping them out like why can't i watch episodes five and six already considering they've been well and truly available and it's not like it's like no one's necessarily needed to come back to watch alaska daily like it's ridiculous <laughs> I, I don't want my hillary swank now give me hillary swank i want my hillary swank now i mean well, kind of got my hillary swank oh simon enough of that let's play the trailer for what what trash are you gonna be talking about here what is this the, the whale. whale come on nobody cares about the whale um <laughs> I know these rules can feel constraining, but remember, the point of this course is to learn how to write clearly and persuasively. Think about that. Think about the truth of your argument. You're an amazing person, Ellie. I couldn't ask for a more incredible daughter. Are you actually trying to parent me right now? Who would want me to be a part of their life? Okay, Simon, TV where Brendan, uh, Brendan Fraser plays a big fat guy. Yeah, it's um, this is a powerful film that's getting a lot of attention because of Brendan Fraser's career resurrection. Um, 
we should point out that Brendan Fraser had a, a central role in the Batgirl film that was that was canned and, and, and put on the shelf. So he was on a real resurgent path. Fresh Onocence. Yeah, exactly. Um, he plays, as you saw in the clip there, an obese uh, and very reclusive English teacher who um, has decided in the final days of his life to reconnect with his estranged daughter um, and form a a bond that will hopefully see him find a bit of happiness before he eats himself into the ground. Um, he left his family um, and took up with one of his students uh, in, a, in a gay relationship that drove a real wedge between his relationship with his daughter, played wonderfully by Sadie Sink. Um, and what we have here is a story of a man not dissimilar to Nicolas Cage's character in... Um, uh, leaving Las Vegas, who was the alcoholic, who just wants to uh, say goodbye to the world on his terms, um, in the grip of his addiction, um, and dealing with his pain and his emotions in a way that um, is self-destructive, but also on his own terms. So it's directed by Darren Aronofsky. It's something very different for him. Aronofsky is usually known for quite vibrant and, and energetic uh, uh, filmmaking, um, big sweeping um, emotional statements. And with this film, he's basically set it all entirely within this recluse's apartment. It's written by Samuel D. Hunter, and it's based on his play. And that's part of the problem I had with the film. The only person in this cast which finds a believable connection between Hunter's very stagey dialogue um, and the film version of that play is is Frasier, and he's the only one who's able to find a, a real human spark. The other characters, despite giving great performances, and that includes Hong Chow as the, the nurse that comes to visit Charlie, um, and Samantha Morton as his ex-wife who finally turns up towards the end of the film, it's a very theatrical sort of film. It's a, you, you can see the stage directions and you can see the stage setups in everything about this film, and it really is why all the award season attention is being focused on Brendan Fraser and not so much the rest of the film. Um, I hope Brendan Fraser takes out all the big all the big awards in the weeks ahead because he is extraordinary in the part. And when he really unleashes and you come to understand the grief and the pain he's going through, it's right there on his, on his face. The fat suit that he wears is um, very convincing. His movements, um, the struggles that he goes through as a, a, an obese man... Uh, are all conveyed in in very realistic terms. I just wish the I wish the emotional core of the film was able to sort of break free of its source material, which it doesn't, and and, and that's a shame. But Fraser is amazing, and it's we're a little bit early on this one. It's in Australian cinemas on uh, the second of February, and is in wide release arrest around the rest of the world. Okay, speaking of strong emotional cores, let's talk about the new Guy Ritchie movie, Operation Fortune, Rue de Guerre. Fortune. That is a sexy name. As a private contractor, you possessing a unique set of skills. What's that? Power up. You said it was clear. I said the front was clear. Ah. Front, back, right, wrong. Anyway, shall we? Okay, Simon, new Guy Ritchie movie, Jason Statham. You know, this is this may Yay. be all that you really. 
This is all some people need to know. Here's the plot for the movie. Elite spy Orson Fortune, I'm sure it's his real name, uh, must track down and stop the sale of a deadly new weapons technology wielded by billionaire arms broker Greg Simmons. Reluctantly teamed up with some of the world's best operatives, Fortune and his crew recruit Hollywood's biggest movie star, Danny Francesco, to help them on their globetrotting mission to help save the world. This is directed by Guy Ritchie. He's a co-writer on the movie. The film stars Jason Statham, Aubrey Plaza, uh, Bugsy Malone, who's a rapper of some, you know, awareness. I was unaware. Uh, Hugh Grant, Josh Harnett, and their carryals. Ultimately, hear that cast, hear that as a Guy Ritchie movie, hear that plot. That's enough to buy a ticket. I bought a ticket to this, and I have to say, this is two-thirds of the way being a really entertaining movie. So, I saw this one oh. during the week. Uh, last night, I re-watched the Guy Ritchie Man from Uncle movie, which I think is genuinely a really great, fun movie. And all the way through Operation Me Fortune... Too. Yeah, well, it is. And so, all the way through Operation Fortune, I was kind of hoping it would reach that stature, okay? Because it has the... Like, it's got the pedigree. Like, it's all there. But it doesn't, and at no point do you ever kind of feel yeah. as though the script really feels like kind of met the mark. Like, all the jokes, uh, it's the thing about the great purred happily, it's got the cadence of a joke, but, like, the actual joke isn't really there in any of the jokes on screen, which is a challenge for a movie like this. Ultimately, I should have walked away from this film thinking, much like I did from Man From U.N.C.L.E., it's, I'd like to see a sequel to this, I would like to see this instead of the next James Bond movie. Like, ultimately, it's ticking a lot of boxes with a cast which is fairly charismatic and a good sort of setup for a, you know, franchise of films. But I don't know, I just kind of left going, you know what, I was never quite bored by it, but I did often wonder why I decided to spend my evening watching it. Um, and the biggest question I have through the entire thing is, why on earth is Aubrey Plaza putting on the accent that she's putting on? It makes no sense. Like... <laughs> It's just baffling. And she's got one of the, she's got one of the most distinctive sort of voices on on, on film. And she's going through yeah. this incredible career surge at the moment with White Lotus and with Emily the Criminal, and and she's doing a lot of good work. The, the, the fact that there's so much quality talent in this film, but it's generating very little buzz around the world. We were in it was being released over in Scandi when we were over there, and there it, it just wasn't any sort of buzz on the film. Um, and and Guy Ritchie is such a He's such a crazy director in terms that he can, oh, I'm going to take on Aladdin. And everyone's going, are you kidding? Am I going to, how can Guy Ritchie, the man behind Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, and, and now have Will Smith as a blue genie? And it turns out to be one of the best of the Disney live action films. And here he is back in his own sort of backyard doing what made him and, and he does so well. And by all accounts, it's a, a fairly mediocre movie. Yeah, look, not great. So it hasn't really got a lot of buzz yet because it hasn't had the US release. So it's had the European and Australian releases. Mm. And often when they kind of flip it the other way around, like that sort of buzz, like marketing engines, they're really quite there for it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Sure. It, it, was, it was a struggle. Like essentially, I will say this, uh, the film's been out, well, when I saw it on Tuesday night, the film had been out for about a week at that point. It was playing on a pretty small screen at my local cinema. Uh, there were more people in that theatre for this than there were for Babylon. You give it a rest. You had such the internet when it comes to Babylon. You're the circling shark who smells blood in the water. I saw your tweets during the week. You just couldn't wait to stick the knife in. But that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Sorry, if you make me sit through a bad movie for three hours and nine minutes, Simon, then I'm going to have some things to say. But anyway, Simon, let's move on. We've got a middle bit. This takes place in the middle of the podcast. Uh, Simon, you've been overseas jaunting. Where did you go? Name the countries. 
Love the middle bit. Very excited to be talking about Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, the Scandi countries. Didn't get to Finland um, and didn't go to Iceland because it's a bit far away. But those three countries were where we were, and I was very. It's, it's such a beautiful part of the world. The, the landscape, the people, no, Simon, the people Simon, are so beautiful. It's ridiculous. No, no, Simon, Simon. I don't care about the landscape. I don't care about the people. This is what I want to know. When I go holidaying somewhere, the first thing I like doing when I get in a yes. hotel. I flip on the TV, I see what the TV experience is like in that country that I'm in. So, Simon, what I want to know is, I don't care about the people. The people, they can stay over okay. there, whatever. Don't care about them. Beautiful landscapes. I follow your wife on Instagram. Like, I've seen enough. I don't need to hear about that. But when you got into your hotel or Airbnb or wherever you were staying, you flipped on that TV, what weird stuff did you see while you were jaunting around? Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I did make some very pertinent observations as to the uh, Scandinavian TV landscape while I was there. Just, brief me, just briefly let me run you through what's happening in uh, Scandinavian television at the moment. In Norway, you have the state-owned NRK uh, network. They're like, that's like our ABC and SBS. And then you have the TV2 network, and that's owned by Egmont, and they have a whole series of sport and and news and channels like that. Very similar in Sweden, you have the SVT uh, public broadcaster and they've got a whole bunch of channels. They have 22 sort of regional outlets where they do local news. Then you have the private commercial network, which include TV4 and Viaplay or Viaplay, which has an output deal with SBS here in Australia. And in Denmark, you have the publicly owned DR or Danish Broadcasting Company and TV2 is the largest private network. And of course, you've got all the streamers like Paramount Nordic and Warner Brothers Discovery and some local ones like Seymour Entertainment that have their, their, their outlets. So when I turned the television on, I was at first very surprised by exactly how much English content there is. Um, we were in Tromso in the north of Norway, uh, and we stumbled straight into a marathon, a Mr. Bean marathon. Mr. Bean is huge in the Scandinavian countries. You will still go into shops everywhere and find T-shirts and souvenirs covered with Mr. Bean. So even all these years after his debut, he's, he's everywhere because he doesn't have language and comedy sells all around the world, physical comedy. Um, we got into Love It All Listed, Australia and UK versions, and Bondi Rescue. So there was some familiar stuff that we saw on television. Sport on these channels is unrecognisable. There's two that were all over. Now, I should point out that soccer is still in its um, post-World Cup winter month um, uh, sort of... Uh, Hibernation. Uh, postponement. Hibernation, yeah, exactly. So we watched this uh, game called handball. Sounds simple in the way that football does, but it is this brutal sort of mix of indoor soccer with a little bit of ice hockey, but not on ice, but it's kind of that rough. We watched Denmark versus Estonia, two of the top handball nations, and the coverage on that is, is huge. And also cross-country skiing, which you wouldn't think would be exciting television, and you'd be right. Now, um, streaming on Scandinavian television. Logging onto our account, uh, we found that it is geo-tracked, and you may have some insight as to why this happened. So when we logged onto our HBO Max and Netflix accounts over there, when we got through our Apple TV that a lot of the Airbnbs provided us, suddenly we were getting Scandi content that we'd never seen before. So we had Norwegian thrillers or classic Swedish films or something like that. So this was not the same content sort of interface that we had back here in Australia, but very much suited to the, that part of the world. Does that sound right to you? Is that how it would work, that having this sort of geo-specific algorithm kick in? 
Yeah, it depends on the platform. So, for example, Paramount Plus in Australia is actually an entirely different platform than they have in the US. So if you go traveling with your Australian right. Paramount Plus, it wouldn't work over there. But if you go traveling with your Netflix account, for example, around the world, then you'll find that whatever country you land in with your Netflix will pick up that local Netflix service. And so right. even though you're doing okay. some dodgy things with an HBO Max, you're telling your internet provider that you're in the United States, so you're seeing the United States version. But when you travel to a country with HBO Max... Uh, like their local server will kick in and give, serve you up the local stuff, or at least like you know protect the server and whatever. Yeah, and I should yeah. point out that just prior to going to Copenhagen for six days, we did binge watch the Nicholas Winding Refn uh, Copenhagen Cowboy six episodes on Netflix, which really divided the house. She hated it. Um, I kind of <laughs> dug it. I thought it was pretty cool. So fortunately, Copenhagen wasn't like that sort of version of Copenhagen. It was a much nicer place than NWR puts across. Now, some oddities. I do want to point out some strange things. Norway has its own version of Sunrise, which is ironic because it doesn't have sunrises. Mm, when we got there, our weather app told us that, yeah, our weather app told us that there would be no sunrise for seven days, and yet every morning we could turn the television on and watch sunrise. So that was interesting. Now, there is a show... And this is one of the oddest things I've ever seen. It's called Per Sperret. It's a popular Swedish Fraja sport, which is a trivia show. Each week, different participants, I think some of them were celebrities, are showing film clips from the front of a moving train and they get certain clues and they have to guess what famous railway journey this footage is from. So one of them, they'll be watching this and they'll be going past and they'll go, oh, that's a mountain that I recognise. Oh, isn't that sort of Lake Cargelligo or whatever down there? And and they have to guess what part of the world they're in watching this train journey. And apparently it's been around for like 30 years and is hugely popular. So who'd have thought? Look, that's incredible. That was interesting. Now, this one you may recognise. No, 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 Simon, no, it is incredible. Simon, New can, I, Year... can, I, sorry, can, can I point uh, out how long we've been running here? Because he's talked about Babylon for about 25 minutes. We, we kind of need to move this along. <laughs> Okay, very quickly, uh, you will know about a British short comedy classic called Dinner for One. It uh, launched on German TV back in the early 70s. It is now so popular in Europe, it's shown right across New Year's Eve. Um, it's a short about a drunk butler and this dowager old lady. Um, we saw that. That turned up on, on local Scandi TV. Um, and interestingly... Scandi films are not provided with English subtitles in the in their homeland. I could not watch two major local cinema releases over there. In Norway, there was The Battle for Narvik, which is a big war epic. And in Sweden, there was a film called UFO Sweden, which I wanted to see. But no films, no cinemas ran them with subtitles. So we'll have to wait to see if they, they come this way in the future. I could go on and on, as I already have, about this uh, amazing world. So more on uh, Scandinavian TV later. Okay, Simon, usually we do a what else have you been watching. I think we're going to delay that to next week. We're going to move on that for sure. <laughs> we are. So let's get that in um, this. And instead, Simon, let's move on to this day in history, or this week in history. I don't mistake. All right, some tough ones here. January... January 23, 1983, The A-Team with Mr. T premieres on NBC. Dan Barrett, where does the A in the title originate? 
So I can give you like about a 50% of an answer here. So I don't know exactly what the A is representative of, but I do know that the A team, it's a bit of slang used for like special ops teams, like during, I think specifically like in the Vietnam War, but I don't know if it extends beyond that. Well done. The name A-Team was the nickname for Operational Detachments Alpha, which were a highly trained covert soldier unit in the Vietnam War. Well done. January 24, 2006, CEO Bob Iger announces that Walt Disney International will buy which animation film studio for $7.4 billion? Uh, I mean, surely this is Pixar. It is definitely Pixar. Also January 24, this time in 2016, which... Cult 90s Fox TV show returns after 13 years. I'm offended that this is even a question. Obviously, it's the X-Files, and how yeah. dare you, sir? It is the X-Files. And on January 25, 1999, which film, a game changer that would become the most successful independent film of all time, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival? This is a movie that I first saw as one of the first movies I got off the internet. It was a little bit pixelated, but it was fine. We're talking about 1999's The Blair Witch Project. Produced for $60,000, the film went on to make $248.6 at the global box office, an indie record at the time. Absolute chump change. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. Interesting okay, bunch of birthday. I love the graphic. Beautiful graphic. Um, what do these birthday buddies all have in common? Now, they've all played a certain character type uh, with a certain trait. January 22, 1934, Bill Bixby. Also January 22, 1959, Linda Blair. January 23, 1944, Rutger Hauer. January 23, 1961, the beautiful Natasha Kinskink. Now, they've all played a character type which has a certain trait can you guess what it is and yes this is a very hard one so i'm 100 percent certain that at some stage each of these actors have played a role where they were in prison but had a neck brace around them that was tied to a similar inmate in a similar situation and if either of them ended up leaving within 100 meters of each other their heads blew off am i correct no okay so simon <laughs> I, that's the movie wedlock starring one rucker hauer but anyway <gasps> oh, of course yeah yeah but no, anyway, Simon, I believe fact, the they... actual answer, I believe the actual yes. answer is each of these actors played a character that goes through a major physical transformation. <gasps> Damn, Barrett, you magnificent bastard. You got it. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Can you name so, it? Okay, so Bill Bixby, obviously best known for playing Dr. David Banner, not Bruce Banner, yeah. David Banner, because it's no. more straight, yeah. uh, played David Banner in The Incredible Hulk. Uh, obviously, he didn't play The Incredible Hulk. That was one Lou Ferrino. Uh, Linda right. Blair, she obviously went through quite the transformation in the Leslie Nielsen film Repossessed, uh, mm, which yeah, is a parody of, of you know, The, the Exorcist, which yeah. is another film she may have been in. Uh, Rucker Hauer was in the film Lady Hawk, and I believe played some sort of wow. wolf-type character. And then Ms. Kinski, I believe, and this is where I'm a little bit patchy, but I think the film she goes through the transformation is Cat People. Is that the film? She she turned from the hot horny woman into a killer cat in Paul yes. Schrader's remake of Cat People. You, you, how did you get that? I thought that was really tough. Well done, Dan Barrett. You've started off the year in a blaze of glory. I do what I can. Sure. Yeah. Wow, this has really gone along. This podcast. This has gone on longer than religion. It's gone almost as long as Babylon. 
that's not true. There's another two and hours until we're reaching battle one phase. <laughs> two hours and three minutes, as my time code says. Simon, this is the end of the podcast. Folks, thank you very much for listening to screen watching or watching it via whatever platform you're on. If you're on Spotify, you can do both. Uh, my name's Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. Start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. Find that one at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and sometimes film. And then on Fridays, I've got the member-only Always Be Streaming newsletter that recounts the big shows that launched that very week. You can find me on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster one That's the handle for my screen space site, screen-space.net. Visit the Screenwatching Facebook page where you can see a whole lot of new trailers and some interesting stuff. The Screenwatching YouTube channel will be getting some fresh interviews up there as the new year kicks on. And on Twitter at screen underscore watching. Now, those are new interviews. You're not getting fresh with your interview talent, right? Mm, well, there's been a couple that I got some funny looks for. But anyway, that's another story. No, it'll be new interview content to see. Okay, exciting stuff. Folks, this is the first proper screen watching of 2023. Aren't we off to a great start? Folks, we'll be back next week, maybe with more graphics on our video program. We'll find out. Folks, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.